1 John chapter 4, we begin in verse 6. This is the word of God. Again, let us hear it. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his Spirit, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 14. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention to a verse that I did not read just now. I'll read it for you just now. It's found in John chapter 12, in the Gospel of John chapter 12 and verse 46. This is the word of Christ where he says simply, I am come a light into the world. And then we compare that to verse 14 from this section we just read from 1 John chapter 12. Four, where John writes, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. You are aware, I'm sure, that the two passages in the New Testament that give us the accounts of Christ's birth are found in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 2. Matthew precedes his account by giving us first Christ's kingly, or what you might call his royal genealogy. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew begins. Luke, you could say, gives us the heavenly account of Christ's birth when he records for us the announcement of the angel to the shepherds Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's in Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. Two verses later, Luke records how the darkness of night gives way to the light of heaven, and the voice of one angel suddenly becomes the voices of multitudes of angels, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
I love to think on that section in Luke's gospel, uh, especially when Luke makes known to us the suddenness with which this took place. I know I've referenced this in the past. Think of shepherds abiding over their fields by night. (coughs) Something of a monotony to their work, I'm sure, just going through the routine, probably fighting to keep awake. And all of a sudden, the heavens are opened. And they see first one angel, and before they're done, there's a whole choir of angels. And my, uh, what a contrast to night and day. Now, outside of these two narratives, (coughs) it might be tempting to say that the New Testament doesn't have very much more to say about the birth of Christ. And for a number of years, I would have agreed with that analysis until I was led to focus on a couple of phrases that occur over and over and over again in the Gospels. These phrases are very simple. And sometimes it's the simplicity of certain words or phrases in the Bible that makes them easy to overlook because at first glance they seem to be insignificant until you slow down enough in your Bible reading to carefully consider them. And while these phrases may not mention the incarnation of Christ directly, they certainly encompass the truth of it and imply it. The two phrases are these, I am come. I am come. These words are spoken by Christ himself, and when someone says to you, I am come, usually it means that such a person began at point A and then arrived at point B. And in the case of Christ, point A would be heaven, and point B would be this world. I am come. So when Christ says, I am come, he's referring to the fact that he's come to this world from heaven. Perhaps the best commentary on Christ's words, I am come, are given to us by John in the prologue to his gospel, where he writes in chapter 1 and verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The second phrase, also spoken by Christ, refers to the fact that his Father sent him. John 6 and verse 38 gives a clear example of this. For I came down from heaven, Christ says, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. There is actually one instance where Christ links his coming into this world with his birth. That reference is found in John chapter 18, verse 37. I've referred to this verse in the past as the only instance in the Gospels where we actually find Christ making reference to his own birth. John 18 and verse 37 reads like this, Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, 
Okay, there you have it. Here is the only reference that I know of in the New Testament where Christ himself is making reference to his own birth. To this end was I born, and note what follows, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Now when you look at these two phrases together, I am come, and the Father hath sent me, or some variation of that phrase, then you note that no less than nine times do we find Christ saying, I am come, and no less than 40 times do we find him saying, in effect, the Father has sent me. And when you take note of the number of occurrences of those phrases, you begin to say that there's actually a much greater emphasis placed on the incarnation of Christ than the two accounts that we have of the actual birth of Christ in Matthew and in Luke. Every time Christ says, I am come, or the Father has sent me, there is in each occurrence at least an allusion to his incarnation. His incarnation, you could say, marks the beginning point of his coming or his being sent by his Father. And so you could also say by way of analysis that Matthew's account and Luke's account give us the birth of Christ in answer to the question of how he came. And they tell us exactly how he came. And when you look at a number of the phrases, I am come, or the Father has sent me, you discover a number of answers to the question as to why he came. So the two narratives answer the fact of his coming and how he came, and then these phrases that we're considering this morning answer the question about why he came. So that's what I want to focus on this morning. The answer to the question of why he came. Our study won't be exhaustive. We could be here a long time, I suppose, if we considered all nine occurrences of I am come and 40 plus occurrences of the Father has sent me. Uh, we won't be exhaustive in our study. It will be the kind of study you can pick up and take further yourself. For our study this morning, I'm going to limit myself to some of the key reasons as to why Christ came, why he was born. I am come, he says, on numerous occasions, and the Father has sent me, he says, on many more occasions. Let's look at a few of the occurrences of these statements to answer the question of why. Why did he come? Why was Christ born? Or to phrase the question with the words of our shorter catechism, why did Christ become a man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her? Why did he come? Why was he born? Well, we have to preface our study, first of all, by considering what these statements presuppose. 
I am come, and the Father has sent me. What underlies those statements? What are they presupposed? When Christ says, I am come, it presupposes that before he came, he could be found somewhere else. Okay? The same thing applies when he says, the Father has sent me. And John is helpful to us here. The prologue to his gospel tells us very specifically where Christ could be found before he came. So in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read with reference to Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word making reference to Christ. He is the Word, the Logos of God. So where is he to be found before he came? In the beginning, the Word was with God, And the word was God. And John makes this something of a point of emphasis when he writes in the next verse, verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Oh, if ever there was a statement to show us the eternality of Christ, the fact that he has existed from eternity past, that he has always been in existence, and thus we have a reference to his deity, it would be these statements by John. That statement in the beginning is arguably an allusion to the very first words of the Bible in the book of Genesis, which read, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Here, then, is Christ with his Father. A long time before he came into this world, before the time of Moses, or before the time the Jews even existed, before the time of Abraham or Noah, indeed, he's found at the very beginning of time, taking part with the Father and the Spirit in the very act of creating the universe. This is what makes the incarnation of Christ such a marvel. Think of that babe in the manger. His existence didn't begin one dark night in a stable. No, he was in the beginning with God. This is why the angel, in explaining the miraculous birth of this baby to Mary, says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And the purpose in assigning him the name Emmanuel stresses the same thing. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, quoting from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Think of the truth of that from that narration in Matthew 1. God with us. We opened our Christmas presents early this year. We probably do that a lot. And one of the things that I got, that my wife wonderfully got for me, 
at my request, mind you, but you got it nevertheless. It was another study Bible to add to my collection. You would think that I had enough study Bibles. I've got quite a few of them, but this one had a particular appeal to me. This one is a church history study Bible in, in, in which um, uh, the verses uh, are filled with comments that come from church fathers uh, dating all the way back through church history. I put that Bible to good use already. Found a tremendous quote by Justin Martyr, dates all the way back to the second century, and he had this to say about Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. He writes, through the prophetic spirit, God announced beforehand that things that are unimaginable and believed to be impossible for human beings would take place in order that when it occurred, it would be believed and received by faith because it had been promised. Boy, what tremendous insight from a man all the way back to the second century. We tend to view, or at least the world tends to view, ancient church fathers as those that are just uh, ignorant of science and very superstitious and vulnerable, therefore, to such notions as a virgin birth. And Justin Martyr recognizes, doesn't he, this is unimaginable and it's believed to be impossible for human beings. And yet it's foretold some 700 years ahead of time so that when it happened, uh, it wouldn't be regarded as so unusual, but in keeping with God's promise. There's another verse, a prophetic verse, that speaks of the place of Christ's birth in the city of Bethlehem. This was the verse that was pointed out to Herod by the Jewish scholars of the day, pointing to the place of Christ's birth in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 6. This verse also reveals to us very clearly the deity of Christ by mentioning his eternality. He is from everlasting to everlasting. The text is found in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Listen to what it says. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. What a clear statement of the eternality of Christ, and thus the deity of Christ. Make sure then, when you read those many statements from Christ in which he says, I am come, make sure that you never lose sight of where he has come from and where he has come to. He came from heaven and he came into this world. But there's another presupposition, this time underlying the phrase, the Father has sent me. This phrase presupposes a plan. A plan that was mapped out, so to speak, before time began. We read earlier in the service that chapter from John's Gospel that shows most clearly this plan that we refer to sometimes as the covenant of redemption. 
Listen again to a portion of Christ's prayer, beginning in John 17 and verse 4. This is Christ now speaking to his Father. He says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Do you hear what he's saying there? There was a work given to him by his Father. Christ goes so far on other occasions, and even later in this prayer, to say that the very words he spoke were words that were given to him by his Father. This work and these words were given to Christ in eternity past in the council of the Holy Trinity. Continuing now, John 17 and verse 5, Christ praying to his Father, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had before thee, or which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Oh, what clarity this prayer of Christ gives to the whole notion then of Christ being sent by his Father. He was sent to accomplish a specific mission which was assigned to him a long time ago. It was a mission that was accomplished by his life and by his death. This mission is encapsulated in another name that is assigned to him at his birth. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, the angel says to Joseph. And why is that, we might ask? Why will his name be called Jesus? The angel answers that question. It's because of what the name Jesus literally means. Jesus, you see, is the equivalent of the Old Testament name Joshua. And Joshua literally means Jehovah saves. And so the angel says to Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jehovah saves, Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. You see then, I trust the presuppositions of these statements by Christ. I am come and the Father has sent me. They presuppose Christ's existence before time began, and they presuppose a mission that was assigned to Christ. Having laid that groundwork then, we are now ready to move on to consider, secondly, the purposes for which he came and for which his Father sent him. The purposes now. The very first mention of the phrase, I am come, is found in Christ's very first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the statement found in 
Matthew's gospel, chapter 5 and verse 17, Christ is making sure that he corrects any wrong notions about his coming. He says, think not that I am come to destroy the law. There's a negative side of the coin. Don't think I came for that reason. I am not come to destroy the law, he says, or the prophets. And then he gives us the positive purpose for his coming. Think not this way, but instead think this other way, okay? I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I am come, he says, and I am come for this purpose, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, he fulfilled the prophets by being born of a virgin and being born in Bethlehem. And he fulfilled the law by fulfilling the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. All those animal sacrifices that you read about when you read through Exodus and especially when you read through Leviticus, all of these animal sacrifices, they all pointed ahead to an ultimate sacrifice that Christ himself would make on Calvary's cross. The burnt offerings and the sin offering and the trespass offering and the peace offering, all those offerings pointed to him. He fulfilled them. You've heard me quote on numerous occasions Ian Paisley, who said in one of his sermons that in all those Old Testament sacrifices, the sacrifice was consumed by the flames. But in the case of Christ, you could say the flames were consumed by the sacrifice. He bore the flames, the flames of condemnation, the flames of judgment. You could say he bore them until he extinguished them. But Christ fulfilled the law in another way as well. He not only fulfilled the ceremonial law, he also fulfilled the moral law. We sometimes think of the Old Testament laws under three categories, the ceremonial law, the civic laws, and the moral law. Ten Commandments falls into the category of the moral law. You remember the account of Adam in the Garden of Eden, in order for Adam to gain eternal life for himself and for his posterity, he had to render perfect obedience to God. That shouldn't have been hard for him because he was created in knowledge and holiness with true knowledge of God. But once he partook of the forbidden fruit, there's a sense in which you could say he broke all ten of the Ten Commandments. He set himself up to be God. He committed murder by plunging the whole human race into sin. And he coveted that which was forbidden to him. And he violated the rest that could have been his portion and the portion of his descendants. The story could have ended there. But before Adam and Eve were even created, Christ could be found. He is designated in the book of Revelation as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
That's in Revelation 13 and verse 8. He's also designated twice in the New Testament as the second Adam. Listen to these words by Paul. They're in Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, that man being Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. How is it that Paul could write, all have sinned, when Adam sinned? Well, Adam is viewed as our federal head. He's viewed as our representative. His actions count for ours. So it can be said, when he sinned, we all sinned, because he represented us all. Paul goes on, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. And then note this last statement, Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Do you catch that? Do you get that? Adam was a figure of of someone else who is yet to come, that one being Christ. Oh, thank God that there was another one to come. That one was Christ. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do. He came to fulfill the law. I remember when I used to go to Wheeler Mission and preach to the people there, I, I, I made something out of this fact that in Adam all sinned, and I, I wanted to create in their minds uh, a sense of consternation. How can you lay Adam's sin onto me? And I would say to them, I can do that by virtue of the fact that he was your federal head. Uh, and if you don't like the way he represented you, I have good news for you. Another representative is available that one being Christ. So Paul could write a couple verses later, Romans 5, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, that being Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, that one being Christ, shall many be made righteous. We are made righteous by virtue of Christ's obedience. We are made righteous because Christ came. He was born, you could say, to obey the law on behalf of those that would put their trust in him. But it wasn't enough for Christ to render obedience that Adam failed to render. Where you see, the law was already broken by Adam. And so we in Adam became indebted to that broken law. The law, in other words, called for our death when it was broken. Thank God John could write in his first epistle another specific reason for which Christ came or was born. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. 
Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is one of the most important words in the New Testament. It's a word that speaks of Christ being God's wrath bearer. Listen to the way Paul states it in Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. John, earlier in his first epistle, says this about propitiation. Chapter 1, verse 9. You know this verse, I'm sure. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is faithful and just. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, And the reason he can and will be faithful to forgive us our sins is because he is just. And the reason he can be just, even in the forgiveness of our sins, is because Christ is the propitiation for those sins. He bore the wrath. He bore the condemnation. It would not be just for God to demand of you what he's already received from his son on your behalf. And that's why you can be sure that God will never fail to forgive you of your sins. He's faithful and he's just. And because of Christ being our propitiation, that term speaks of Christ satisfying justice so that he can forgive, and he never will fail to forgive. I know we think of forgiveness, don't we, usually in terms of God's grace and God's love and God's mercy, and that's all good and it's all true, but don't ever forget that his forgiveness is also in keeping with his justice. He forgives us because justice demands it, and justice demands it because Christ bore the wrath of God on our behalf. That is the meaning of the term propitiation. So these are but two 
of the specific purposes for which Christ came and for which the Father sent him to fulfill the law on behalf of those that would believe in him and to be the propitiation for their sins. I said at the beginning of this study that I would not be comprehensive. I would only highlight a couple of the major reasons for which Christ came. If you care to carry this study forward on your own, you'll discover that Christ came, sent of his Father, to give life and to give it more abundantly. John 10 and verse 10, The thief cometh not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come, there's our statement, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Add to that, Christ came to give light to those who were in darkness. John 12, 46, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Christ, you could say, was sent of his Father that we might be adopted into the family of God. Galatians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, there's our statement, there's our phrase, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So, you can carry the study forward. I have not yet exhausted the uses of the phrase. Uh, there are some that... Uh, you can take on and discover for yourself. Let me, for now, close our study briefly by considering, thirdly, lastly, the impact of Christ's coming and being sent by his Father. How should this impact us? The fact that I am come, or that he's sent by his Father. There should be and this is a very high priority item, there should be what I would call a doxological impact on us when we consider Christ coming and being sent by his Father. And by doxological impact, I mean simply that we should be moved to worship him who has come and to worship the Father which sent him. How appropriate are the words of Matthew 2 and the example of the wise men of the East. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the East to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the East and are come to worship him. Oh, we should be impacted by the truth that he has come and that he was sent, knowing as we do why he was sent and what he accomplished, how we should be moved all the more to worship him. One of the things that disturbs me a little bit this time of year, when we sing some of the hymns that focus on the incarnation, is how lacking some of those hymns can be in terms of historical precision. 
In other words, the imagination of men seemed to get the best of the authors of some of our Christmas carols. One hymn, however, stands in contrast to this, which is the one that we sung this morning, O Come All Ye Faithful. O come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. What a great call to worship. What a great call to this day. Come and let us adore him. He's worthy of our worship. When you strive to wrap your mind around the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, coming into this world, becoming incarnate, which means taking to himself flesh, oh, how that should compel us then to worship him. And when you think upon the purpose for which he came and was sent by his Father to be with us, Emmanuel, and to save us, Jesus, that too should compel us to humble and joyful praise and adoration. Oh, may the truth of his coming and being sent by his Father never move us, or never fail to move us, to wonder and awe and humble praise and thanksgiving in worship. May we ever find ourselves compelled to join the heavenly anthem where the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And then finally, there should also be a missions impact on our lives by the truth that Christ has come and was sent by his Father. The shepherds who saw and heard that heavenly choir can serve as excellent examples of this kind of impact. Listen to the words of Luke 2, verse 15 and following. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. It seems, doesn't it, that once they came and saw Christ, they went on an evangelistic tour before they went back to their jobs as shepherds. And oh, how we should do the same. May we be so moved then by the glorious and condescending truth of Christ coming into this world, being sent by his Father, that we too ever endeavor to make known abroad all that we know of Jesus Christ, who he is, and why he came. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence this morning now and bring this meeting to a close, 
We thank thee for the truth of thy word. We bless thee, O Lord, that we're not following cunningly devised fables this morning. When we think of Christ and when we hear his words, that he has come and that the Father has sent him, we thank thee for the truth of these things, and we pray that the meaning of these things, O Lord, would have a deep and abiding impact on our lives so that we find ourselves constantly engaged in worship and constantly noising abroad all that we know of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.